You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Merry Christmas. We are really glad that you're here. So let me, can I just, if I can make a confession. Uh, it, it, I used to hate Christmas. And, um, and the reason I hated Christmas was because everything was packed. The roads were packed. I mean, if you've been on the road at any time recently, you know it's madness out there. The malls are packed. Restaurants are packed because no one has cooked since Thanksgiving. Um, the, your schedule's packed because everybody has a thing that you have to show up for. And then your closets are packed because you're hiding a bunch of stuff from your kids. And then your living room is packed because you decided to put a seven-foot tree inside your house. Because no one, and it doesn't matter, no one buys a house thinking, you know what, this will fit our eight-foot Fraser fur. You know, you just do it. You just shove it in there. And then, you know, you got a small forest in your house uh, for a month. And um, so that used to drive me crazy. And then, um, truth be told, I didn't like Christmas very much when I was a kid. I liked the presents and stuff, but I didn't, I didn't, I grew up in Boston, as many of you know, but I didn't like having to explain these insane Cuban rituals that we had surrounding Christmas uh, to people that, like my neighbors and stuff. So I remember coming back from winter break when I was in the fifth grade and uh, having to draw what we ate on Christmas. And I... Uh, there isn't, you know, Crayola hasn't made the right color for rice, beans, yuca, and lechon. Uh, there isn't, they, they haven't made quite that shade yet. And uh, so, and, and I remember telling my mom, like, hey, can, why can't we just be like normal people? And, um, and, and I, you know, I remember my friend Mike, who lived right next door to me, he was saying, he's like, hey, why did your stepdad uh, make you dig a hole in your backyard? I'm like, well, because we're going to be cooking an entire pig later. And, um, and he's like, oh, is that what your dad, what your stepdad was doing? And by the way, we didn't, uh, they didn't buy like a grate. Um, they used an old screen door as the thing that they put. I mean, this is like ghetto Cuban. And so they, they would put the pig on top of the screen door in the hole. This is madness. And so, and I'm telling you, um, you know, we were the only Cuban family, I think, in the city. And so even the Mexican family that lived down the street was like, I think you're being a little extreme about pork. And, um, but, you know, my, my friends' families, they didn't eat weird food. They, they didn't have um, weird practices like celebrating the day before the holiday. I don't know if you've really thought that through. Um, if you're Latin, I know that that seems normal because everyone else does it. But... Um, like, I hear people say, like, oh, do you celebrate Christmas or the day before Christmas? Like, well, I think we should all be celebrating Christmas because celebrating the day before Christmas doesn't make any sense. Because if you did that a week from now, like, you go to somebody's house, like, hey, what are you guys doing for New Year's? Dropping the ball, counting down. Like, no, no, we did that last night. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. And so, now, and I, and I will say this, that because that's just how life is, depending on where you are. But there, I know right now... There's, there's some kid who's not Latin living in Miami saying to his mom, why can't we just co cook congri like a regular family, you know, but whatever. So, but the truth of the matter is, is that every family looks weird when you're part of it. And every family has that one family member that you secretly wish you weren't related to. And if you're like, no, I don't think we have that, <laughs> you do. 
and, uh, and it's you. And so, but, um, but what I wanted to do for our time together as we, as we think about Christmas and whatnot is I wanted to talk about the Christmas story in, in real terms because what we have a tendency to do is sanitize the Christmas story. And we do it. We do it with our songs, um, you know, like, think, like Silent Night. Silent Night is a beautiful song, but totally unrealistic. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a room with a woman giving birth. Many things it is. A silent night is not one of them. All right? And so, but, and so once again, there's lots of things that get sanitized. There's lots of things that get kind of glossed over because we want the Christmas story to be a little nicer and neater. We want to remove the grit, and if we're being honest, even some of the scandal from the Christmas story because we want Christmas to be problem-free and drama-free, and, and I totally get that. I don't know anyone that's like, oh, I'm really into drama, um, because if you are, you probably need to be on some form of medication. Um, but we want Christmas to be nice and neat because we, and that's why we want the first Christmas to be nice and neat and no problems, and uh, we want everybody to get along, we want everybody to get what they ask for, we want the kids to be grateful, and we want the family to behave. But the problem is, is that Christmas doesn't change who people are. People are just themselves. And then that's why if your family doesn't get along, um, putting them all together in the same room on Christmas doesn't really change that. And so if, if kids aren't grateful throughout the year, what they get on, on Christmas isn't going to magically make them uh, grateful. In fact, Christmas has a tendency to kind of draw out the problems that are already there. And that's why we tend to pray and just say, God, I just, can we just have a, a, a Christmas that's free of any messiness? And, um, and the truth of the matter is, is that if God wants to, and I believe he does, he wants to transform your family, what it might be, instead of removing the messiness, it might be God dropping you into the messiness um, so that he can do a work in your family, and through your family, through you. And so, and that's what we're going to, that's what the first Christmas teaches us. Because if the first Christmas was tough for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, listen, we might deal with some difficulties as well. And so I want to read a, a very familiar part of the Christmas story. But because we don't have some of the background, we miss some of the scandal that was happening. So we're going to start Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone in his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David which is called Nazareth, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now if you pause there and give me your attentions, three things that we're going to look at in relation to this passage. But the first is this, if you're a note taker, that Christmas is the time to embrace the messy. Now the first Christmas was messier than we realize. And, uh, and I want to take some time to explain this a little bit. I think it's so important. Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, which is kind of up by Galilee. There is a census that's taking place that Caesar Augustus wants to do. Uh, this Caesar, his name was Gaius Octavius, and um, 
he, but he also thought himself a god, which is why he gave himself uh, the name Augustus or August one, because you know he thought him, that he was a god. And so, but he was he wanted to see how big is my empire. So he calls for the census to be taken. Everyone has to go back to their hometown, to the place where they're registered, so that they can then see who's alive, who has died uh, since the last census, and who has been born since the last census. So. Everybody has to go. Joseph, his family is from Bethlehem because he's from the family of King David. And so that's where he has to go. So now he's going with his nine-month pregnant wife. It says that they were betrothed. Now, in uh, Jewish culture, uh, there was basically three stages, if you want to call it that, of uh, Jewish, uh, of being married. There was, first thing was, remember, marriages were arranged back then, which I always thought was kind of weird. Then I had three kids, and now I'm all for it. Um, but, so, here's what happens, is that parents would get together and say, hey, your son, my daughter, let's make something happen. So they would agree. So they would be kind of committed to each other at that time. Then there would be a betrothal. This is where they are, Joseph and Mary. That is, they've been betrothed together. Now they are legally married. They, are, they haven't consummated their marriage, and they have not had their, uh, like, the big wedding, which usually takes seven days. That's where they would consummate their marriage. So that hasn't happened yet. Typically, the betrothal and then the actual marriage, the consummation, took about a year uh, apart. In between that time, from the betrothal to when they were going to get married, this is when they find out that Mary is pregnant. And so I want to read to you from the Gospel of Matthew, but here's the challenge. I want to read this to you, but, but we have heard this so many times. We don't really think about it. But I want you to try to think about it from someone who has never heard this before. This has never happened before. And so now you're hearing, maybe you're someone in Joseph's family, and you're just hearing that, hey, you know, Joseph, you know, Mary's getting married. Remember, we're going to, the, we're going to plan this big wedding. Well, okay, well, here's what's happening with them. This is a big scandal. Now, let me, so let me read it to you now. Here's what it says. It says, now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is, consummated their marriage, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, that is, divorce her. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will uh, bring forth a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, here's the other thing you got to know about the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. That's why it begins with the genealogy of Jesus, what connects him to King David, what connects him to uh, Abraham, uh, the father of the Jewish faith. So that's where it begins. And then the next thing that we get is the story about Jesus's birth. And this is where the Jewish reader would be totally freaking out because there's a problem, there's some mystery around Jesus's birth. And so in a Jewish culture, your family history, your genealogy was everything. So for there to be... Um, a problem or some mysterious or bizarre circumstance surrounding your birth was a very bad thing. And this would create a stigma that you would carry for your entire life. 
People like that, where there was a word that was used in Hebrew to describe people like that. They were called mamzers, M-A-M-Z-E-R. Mamzer is a Hebrew word that means illegitimate. This title followed Jesus around. In fact, when Jesus begins his ministry and he's doing miracles, people are hearing about him everywhere. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And look what, listen to what it says. Jesus left that part of the country, it's in your notes in Mark chapter 6, and he returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And they scoffed, saying, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, you may want to underline that, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us, and they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. In a Jewish world, now this is so different for us, because we are in the West very individualistic. I don't have to be connected to anyone in my family. I can stand as my own man. You can stand as your own person and do your thing. Uh, in a Jewish world, it's very different. You were connected to your family. What you did either brought honor to your family or brought shame to your family. And so because of that, you were always connected to those who came before you. So you were your name, the son of your father's name. That's how that works. That's how you connected to your world, to your family, to your ancestry. And so if you were, if you were Simon and your father's name was Jonah, which like Simon Peter, you were Simon um, ben Jonah, right? Simon, son of Jonah. But for them, if you notice, what we read is that they're like, this is the carpenter, the son of Mary. They don't acknowledge Joseph as the father. They put his mom there, and that is an insult. Why? Because it means there's no father to attach him to because this child is a mamzer. Now, I tell you this, and this is an important part of the background to give you, because there's a part of the story that we don't understand. We have read it. So many times, they're like, well, you know, I guess that's just how it goes. But it's something that we would never allow to happen. It would be unfathomable to think that we would let such a thing happen. The first thing I have to do is I have to teach you a Greek word. The Greek word is kataluma. That's it. If you can say it, one, two, three, kataluma, right. Kataluma is a, uh, it's a word that appears only three times in the New Testament. Um, it is used two times to speak of the same event. So I'll give you a passage, you'll see it on the screen. It says, when, uh, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room, Kataluma, in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? That's used here in Mark 14. That's also used in the Gospel of uh, Luke to talk about the same event, that Jesus is looking for a place. But see, the word when we read this, that they... Uh, they, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. That's the word kataluma. Uh, now, we think of an inn, we're like, oh, is that, um, is that, is that holiday inn, right? Is, is that, you know, uh, courtyard by Bethlehem? Is that there, you know? And so we think it's that, but no, it's not a, a hotel. A kataluma is a spare room, a guest room in someone's house. They're saying that they had to go to the, this manger because there was no room at, in the spare room in the home that Joseph grew up in. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because when a woman is pregnant, right, there is nothing 
that you wouldn't do for a woman who's pregnant. When my wife was pregnant with um, each of our three kids, she could make any request of me and it would happen. And I remember one time, and I think she was, this is when she was pregnant with my son, Xander. Um, she, she said, Bob, would, would you mind um, going to Burger King for me so that I can have a Whopper? And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I, I'll pick one up for myself too. Um, and then, so, and she's like, but, um, but you know, I don't like the fries there. I'm like, yeah, Burger King fries are trash. And, uh, and she's like, but if you don't mind, after you get the Whoppers, could you stop by McDonald's and get an order of fries for me? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds fine. I'll do that. And she's like, and, and if it's not too much trouble, would you mind stopping at Wendy's and getting a Frosty for me? And you know what I did? I went to all three places because it's what you do for a pregnant woman, right? Now, okay, so that's one part. Here's the other part. The thing that we have to take into consideration is that hospitality in the East, in the Eastern culture, hospitality is the highest of virtues. Um, We have some friends who were missionaries in the Middle East for about 10 years, and one of the things that they would tell me, the country that they lived in, they said that, Um, If you were walking down the street and you had to use the bathroom, you wouldn't like, you wouldn't wait until you got to the store or the restaurant. You could knock on anyone's house, knock on anyone's door and just say you need to use the restroom and they'll let you in. I want you to think about how that would work in your neighborhood today. I want you to think about your neighbor knocking on the door like, hey man, can I use the bathroom? You'd call the cops on that guy right? Like, why are, you, why are you being weird? You live right two doors down, right? But that's just how it is. And so, and then you, so in the Middle East, you would go, hey, can I use the bathroom? Of course, it would be our honor to, for you to use our restroom. And so then you would use, you'd use their, um, their restroom. And when you came out, they would have tea and food waiting for you. Now you got to sit. So by the way, I hope you're not in a rush. And so now you're going to sit and you're going to have tea and now you're going to have something to eat. By the way, after a little while of conversation, you need to use the bathroom again. And so then, and this is how it is. And so it doesn't matter. So this is, so I want you to understand this. In a culture where hospitality is the highest virtue, and you and I know you would never say no to a woman who was nine months pregnant, ready to give birth. How is it that there's no space in the spare room of the house that, you're, that Joseph grew up in. It's because they believed that this child that she was carrying was a mamzer and that Joseph's family believed this child's birth was going to shame their family forever. So what are they doing? Trying to create some distance. So instead of giving birth in a home, she ends up in a cave behind the house while everybody is in the house enjoying their time together. They're doing that because they couldn't make room for the Savior of the world. Listen, once you understand a little bit of the background, it changes the nativity in front of your house. Uh, It's not so cute. It's not so much of a precious moment. It's a scene that is wrought with misunderstanding and family drama. But see, this is why I'm saying is that sometimes we miss it, that even in the midst of the messiness of Christmas, God wants to do something. God wants to do something in and through your family, sometimes in and through you for your family. And he wants to use you in the process to change them. So what else do we learn? Number one, we got to embrace the mess. The other thing that we we learn is this, is that Jesus had godly parents who trusted God. Now, um, one of the things that we do not do enough in the church at large 
is we do not pay enough attention to Joseph. Joseph was this very godly man who was in a very difficult situation and, um, and yet chose what was right. We focus on Jesus, and that's good. And then um, what happens is with Mary, like our Catholic friends worship Mary, which makes Protestants uncomfortable. And so what we do as Protestants is we kind of go in the other direction. We try to like downplay her completely. Like Mary, I don't know, never heard of her. Uh, and, and so, but here's the thing that you got to know is that Joseph and Mary are very godly people. Listen, our Heavenly Father had the ability to choose whatever family he wanted his son born in. And he didn't choose a rich family. He didn't choose an influential family. Instead, he chose two godly people who were willing to be misunderstood for the sake of doing the will of God and bringing the Messiah into the world. When Mary found out that she was going to give birth to to the Messiah, we, we know what she said after. And that is that she praised this beautiful prayer in Luke chapter 1. Um, sometimes it's called the Song of Mary. In, in Latin, it's called the Magnificat. And um, it's just 10 verses. And it's, I'm gonna, let me just read you a couple. It says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, here's the thing that you got to know about this song that she, what's called Mary's song. Every word of it is a quotation from the Old Testament. And her thanking God for choosing her. And by the way, she says, generations are going to call me blessed. Even though this generation totally misunderstands what's happening, future generations are going to call me blessed. I mean, can we be honest for a minute? I mean, doesn't Mary realize she's going to be a teenage unwed mother? Do- doesn't she realize that she's going to be a social outcast because of what God is doing in her life? I mean, is this really a time to be rejoicing? Well, yeah, if you don't think the moment is about you, but it's about the plan of God. Because the truth of the matter is, is that from this moment on, rumors will swirl about her. People will whisper every time she walks in and out of a room. Hurtful things are going to be said about her because she is being given the greatest honor a person could be given to carry, give birth to, and parent the Messiah. Now, here's why this is so huge and why it's so important and why I want to spend some time talking about it. Her worldview was informed by her knowledge of who God is, and that changes everything. You see, in that culture, there, uh, every Jewish child from age 6 to 10 would attend a school of learning that was called Beth Safer. Beth Safer is a Hebrew phrase that means house of the book. And uh, they, the first day of school, they'd be given honey on their finger. They were told to eat it. And the rabbis would, would pray this prayer blessing over them. They'd say, may the words of God be even sweeter to you than this honey. And at Beth Safer is where they would memorize the first five books of Moses, the, the, the Torah. Now, I know that that sound, if you've ever read them, you know they're, very, they're long, intricate, and you're like, how in the world could somebody memorize this? I mean, this, nobody could memorize something like this. And I remember, and then um, you realize this, you and I memorize so much stuff. The problem is a lot of it is totally useless. But these guys remember, like, I, and I realized that even about myself. I was in Old Navy a couple of months ago with my kids and my wife, and we're walking through, and um, they're playing songs, and, uh, and this song comes on called Mickey. I don't know if you ever heard Mickey. Oh, Mickey, what a pity you don't understand. 
You take me by the heart when you take me by the hand. And I'm just, and then I'm doing, hey, it. I'm doing this whole thing. I'm going for it inside of, my kids are looking at me and they're like, you know, security comes over. I'm like, I'm sorry, he's not well. And um, I'm telling you, I haven't heard Mickey in 30 years. And yet, I, I, I don't, it, it was all still filed, right? It's, it's insane. The stuff we memorized, I, I still have my locker combination from high school memorized. I still remember what locker it was, 2448. That was my, and if you go 3822, that locker, that thing's going to open. And um, don't worry, it's not my pin. Uh, and so, <laughs> and so, but listen, and you know, I, I don't, it bothers me that I still remember that stuff. And um, my wife, I was telling my wife, like, I can't believe I remember that. She's like, I, I know why. You used that locker for five years. That's why. And uh, I was like, wow, that's, that's hurtful. That's hurtful. And so, it's true, but it's hurtful. But... <laughs> But listen, this incredibly godly woman knew the Bible, and it transformed her world, it transformed her outlook on the world, and it transformed her circumstance. This is why, listen, the greatest gift that you give your kids is never a thing. The greatest gift that you give your kids is a faith to where they can know God and navigate the storms of life. I, I, I'm telling you, I, I have parents who tell me, and I don't know why they tell me this. I don't know if they think it's, it makes them sound sophisticated, where they'll say, well, I mean, I'm letting my kids figure out their own way when it comes to faith. I'm not pushing it on them. By the way, it's got to be the lamest thing I've ever heard. Um, and um, Because we don't apply that logic to any other area of life. None. Where, what we, and, in fact, we wouldn't even apply that logic to a sports team. Like, could you imagine a dad, you know, I'm not pushing my kids. They can like whatever team they, they want. You know, I mean, if they want to like the Dolphins, that's fine. But, you know, if they like the Jets, that's cool too. You would never allow that in your house. It's just like, you know, I mean, that, that's, I mean you wouldn't. And, and, and listen, if, that's not even something that matters, right? But you're like, no, this, this is something that a father passes on to a son. How much to a greater degree would be your faith? And, this is, and the solution is, listen, have a faith that's worth passing on. Have a faith that is so integral to your life that your kids would think that it's crazy to want to navigate life without the God who loves them and wants to lead and direct them. And then, oh, thanks, appreciate that. Third and lastly, Christmas is the time to respond to God. You see, if Jesus were born to a rich, influential family in a palace, we'd be asking some questions about our lives. But the manger answers the questions that all of us have asked. If we asked, I mean, does God know what's going on with me? The manger tells us yes. Does God know how bad things are? The manger tells us that he does. Does God know what I'm going through right now? The manger tells us that he knows. That, that's why Jesus came the way that he did. That's why Jesus attracted the people that he attracted. Who did Jesus hang out with? Other mamsers. His following was like an island of the misfit toys, right? It was former tax collectors and fishermen and guys who had been rejected from following the rabbis of their day, guys who had been lepers and been healed and all this kind of stuff. All the social outcasts were drawn to Jesus. All these social mamsers who maybe had felt marginalized at some point, they flocked to him. And listen, my guess is if you're a believer, that's why you flocked to him as well. Because whether you were the person who was first picked to play on the team or you were the person who was last picked, he chose you. You see, it's just the counterintuitive nature of how God works. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul writes this. The Apostle Paul, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chose the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. You see, Jesus is the one who's accepting the people that nobody else will take or maybe nobody else wants. The nativity scene then becomes the banner. The banner for everybody who's ever been abandoned, rejected, or written off. And my friends, this is why I love Christmas. Because Christmas is the holiday for the misfits. It's the day that God became a misfit to reach misfits like me, like you, like us. And if you're here today, and that moves you, it should. Because God came into this world so that you would know him. Not so that there would be some, some like mysterious idea of who God is. No, but that he is someone that we could know. That someone that we could identify with, someone that we could be transformed by. That we could see the path that leads to him, that leads to forgiveness, that leads to grace, that leads to everlasting life, that leads to the future that we really want, that we could never figure out on our own. You see, maybe, maybe you are a believer. And you're saying, yeah, I'm a believer, but I've been kind of doing my thing. I've been doing things my own way, and I got to be honest, it has not worked out the way that I hoped that it would. Maybe God is calling you as well. Because the message of Christmas hasn't changed. It's God with us. And it's not just God with us. It's God wanting to be with you. And that maybe this is the Christmas that changes your life forever when you decide if God with us means God wants to be with me, then maybe this is my moment to take a step in his direction because I want to be with him. So I'm going to invite all of us to stand, if you would, in these closing couple of moments. Because I really believe that this can be the Christmas that changes our lives forever. If we're willing to let him in. If we're willing to let him in so we can experience the message of Christmas, of him being with us, of our lives being changed, of us experiencing forgiveness, mercy, and grace, so that he can not just forgive our past, because some of us, we came in here and there's all kinds of stuff we've been carrying with us. There's all kinds of baggage and regret. And listen, this can be the day that we just let that go, that God just deems it forgiven and we're done. But we can experience forgiveness from our past. We can experience peace in our present because we know that he's with us and hope for the future because he's the author of life and he wants to lead and direct us in ways that we could never think up for ourselves. So listen, in a minute, the band is gonna begin to sing. And as they do, here's what I wanna invite you to do. If you're saying this moment, if you're saying this is the moment that I want God to change me, to transform me, then listen, if that's the case, when they begin to sing, I want you from wherever you're standing in this room to meet me here at the base of this stage. And here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you and I want to lead you in a prayer. It's as simple and as profound as that. But here's what I know. If the Bible says, draw near to God, 
it's because he's already drawn near to you. He's already waiting for you. And if that's the case, then when we meet him here, this is where everything begins to change. If we're sincere and we just want to open ourselves to him and allow him to do a deep work in us. So if you're ready, when they start singing, you come forward and watch what God can do in your life. Pastor George, lead us. Jesus, we love you. Oh, how we significant and important decision that you will ever make in your life because this is the decision that opens up every other thing that God wants to do in you and through you and for you. And here's how I know that. Because 30 years ago, I made the exact same decision that you were making. And I can tell you this, and I've said this many times, I wasn't looking for God. But man, I am so glad that he was looking for me. And um, that day, everything changed. The entire trajectory of my life changed. My family tree changed. Everything changed because of that one decision. And that's everything that awaits you. And, and so much else. All the joy that God wants to bring into your life, the people that God wants to bring into your life, the blessing that God wants to bring into your life, and even in difficult seasons, He's going to bring you through it because he's going to be standing next to you in that moment, in those moments. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you, and then I want to lead you in a simple prayer. It's not a magic formula, but I just pray that as I, they might be my words, but I just pray that they would express our heart to God in this very moment. So let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you. We thank you that you hear us and that you love us. And I thank you, Lord, for these precious people that have made a courageous decision to come forward and open their hearts to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet them in this very place right now and that you would transform their lives in a way that only you can do, that their future would be exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think. And those of you that have come forward, I want to invite you to repeat this prayer with me. We're going to say it out loud. In fact, we're all going to pray it. Say, dear God, I come to you today and I'm sorry for all my sins, but I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I could have forgiveness in life. I want to walk with you starting right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift 
we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.